Shalom, this is Reverend John Ferret, and we are in the, the series, The Gospel According to Moses, in the book of Exodus. We're in lesson number 38, and we're going to continue our study, and we're focusing in now on chapter 13. We finally made it there, and we're going to be focusing in on verses 1 through 21. Now, in previous lessons, I talked about, especially the, the I think the first lesson of the Exodus series back in lesson one, also in the Genesis series uh, in lesson one, I talked about a number of goals of these courses. Uh, one of the goals happens to be, where is Jesus in the Torah? Jesus says in John 5.39, probably between 24 to 30 A.D., he says that all scripture testifies of him. Well, what was scripture in those days, 24 to 30 AD? The Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. And the five primary books, the foundational books of the Bible in those days was the Torah. So where is Jesus in the Torah? That's what they understood then. You've always heard me say that I really feel that the Bible was written to those first hearers and through Bible history and archaeology and customs and culture and geography, we want to reconnect ourselves to possibly what they heard and what they understood so that we can understand God's original intention in his word. So one goal is, where is Jesus in Torah? The next is, those first disciples, remember the 120? They're on uh, the Mount of Olives, the 120 at his ascension. What did they see? What did they understand? I mean, they changed the world. They changed the world with the gospel. So different than the church today. So what did those first disciples hear and understand? And knowing this, the third goal, how does it help us? How does it help us now in our lives in the 21st century? How does it help us want to be disciples like them. <laughs> you guys, this is one lesson that really does it all. So let's begin. So reading from the New American Standard Bible, we're going to read Exodus 13, verses 1 through 10. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Sanctify to me every firstborn, the firstborn offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast, it belongs to me. Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out from Egypt, from the house of slavery? For by a powerful hand the Lord brought you out from this place, and nothing leavened shall be eaten. On this day in the month of Aviv you are, to, you are about to go forth. It shall be when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall observe this rite in this month. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten throughout the seven days, and nothing leavened shall be seen among you, nor shall any leaven be seen among you in all your borders." You shall tell your son on that day, saying, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall serve as a sign to you on your hand, and as a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. 
In other words, the Torah of the Lord, because that's exactly what it says in Hebrew, that the Torah of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a powerful hand, the Lord brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, you shall keep this ordinance at its appointed time from year to year. So one of the first things that comes up in this lesson is the concept of the firstborn. God says that all the firstborn are his. And he says, again, a New American Standard, sanctify to me every firstborn. Sanctify. The firstborn are to be made holy. That's what sanctify actually means. So with regards to that, this is not some special spiritual condition. This is not like their saints, the firstborn, and the others are not. In other words, the firstborn are special, but they're not at a different level spiritually. The verb here to sanctify is kadash. The Strong's number is 6942, and that is to make holy. The Hebrew word to make holy is kadosh, and that Strong's number is 6918. And kadosh is holy, but it really simply means something set apart, something put aside, something separated as special. So, for instance, I have, and so does Robin, we have very special coffee cups and teacups that we use in the morning. And that's that the, they have a very special use. They're set aside in a special place near our coffee machine. So they're holy. They're set aside. They're separated as special. That's all it means. So for the firstborn, they're physically set aside. They're special in terms of belonging to the Lord. Now, when we look at the verses here in 13, we haven't read them yet, but we're going to read verses 11 through 13. And when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, as he swore to you and to your fathers and gives it to you, shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb and the first offspring of every beast that you own. The males belong to me. And going on to 15... It says, it came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go that the Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord the males, the first offspring of every womb, but every firstborn of my sons I redeem, meaning Israel. So, the firstborn male animals are all sacrificed. Except donkeys, that's a special case. We'll get to that when we need to. The firstborn baby boys that are non-Levites, that are not part of the tribe of Levi or Levi, these must be redeemed. God said it. There's no choice in the matter. A non-Levite baby boy must be redeemed. The Levites all belong to the Lord. There's no release from that. So in terms of being redeemed, in terms of a Levite, they can't be. Now, redemption and the process of redemption, 
especially in Jesus' day, is called Pidon Haven. Pidon Haven. And you can go to Numbers 18, verses 15 through 16, and we find out that the redemption price is set by God. It's basically five shekels of the sanctuary. Now, that's not much money. Uh, it's kind of more of a symbol than anything else. From my understanding, it's about a buck or two. I mean, it's it's very, very, very inexpensive. But then we read the following. I'm going to Luke chapter 2, and I'm reading verses 21 through 28. And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it was written in the law of the Lord, the Torah of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And there it is again. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now let me just stop here real quick, because there's two things going on in verse 23 and 24. In verse 23, bringing Jesus to the temple, where it says, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. That's one thing. They're bringing up to pay the five shekels to ask the priests for a blessing upon their son. But the other is a sacrifice, according to the Torah, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. That's not related to Jesus, that's related to Mary. We're not going to go into that now, but we will see that later in the book of Leviticus, where Mary, because she had a son or daughter, had to go to the temple, and it was the time uh, of her purification. So there's two things going on here. And to continue reading, And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, or the Lord's Messiah. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, the custom of the Torah, then he took him and his arms and blessed God. And then we have the blessing. So, the key is the firstborn male is holy to the Lord. He's set aside. He has a special status. And Mary took Jesus to redeem him and also to do her own um, ritual after having a son. So for Jesus, he's going to be going, that Mary and Joseph are taking him through the ritual of Pidon Havon. And in this story, Simeon, he takes the baby and blessed him. And in Jesus' day, there would be a special Levite priest. He'd be the one that would take the child, bless him, and also accept the five shekels for his redemption. So it seems that Simeon fits the bill. It doesn't say it. But he does the blessing. He takes the child in his hands. Now, what's fascinating here is Jesus' redemption, but we're dealing with the Christmas story. The Christmas story. And Jesus being redeemed 
takes us back to the Exodus. Takes us right back here to Exodus 13. For this redemption is to be a reminder of the great redemption of Israel. I find it interesting. I find it interesting that Jesus has a dual nature. He's human, but he's also divine. As human, he's a firstborn male of Mary. According to the Torah that God, Jesus, gave his people, Jesus had to be redeemed. Pidon Havon. Uh, Pidon Havon. But he's also divine. Jesus is the firstborn, only begotten Son of the Father. He's the Lamb of God. The firstborn male Lamb of God. And just like all the lambs, the firstborn lamb needs to be sacrificed. That's interesting to me. It's amazing to see Jesus' birth connected to to the Exodus. He is the Lamb of God. He paid the price. He paid the price for us too. The redemption price. We're redeemed and we're set free. We are not slaves to sin any longer. I was so amazed again to see these connections. Again, putting the Bible in its historical context. And it's clear, those disciples had to see this. How much more there is to teach in the Christmas season. In the Christmas season, talking about this event, especially to our children, takes us all the way back to the Exodus. All of this is so weaving together one story with another. God's redemption plan set and predetermined right from the beginning. And we see the connection of Exodus even to the Christmas story. But there's another explosive connection here in Exodus 13. I want to go back and read verses 6 through 9. So Exodus 13, verses 6 through 9. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast of the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten throughout the seven days, and nothing leavened shall be seen among you, nor shall any leaven be seen among you in all your borders. Now we've already talked about this in previous lessons. We talked about the fact that leavened bread seemingly is invented by the Egyptian people. It's part of their you might say, pagan culture. The gods were associated with providing the bread of life, bread. It's almost as if the unleavened bread is to give a picture, a polemic, if you will, against Egypt. In other words, Egypt has leavened bread. God is saying, eat unleavened bread. A polemic against Egypt. Because the unleavened bread is to tear away the people the Hebrews, the Israelites, away from the gods of Egypt and the dependence of Egypt, and now to depend upon totally on God. Verses 8 and 9, and here's the ones that I really want to pay attention to. And you shall tell your son on that day, saying, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall serve as a sign. What shall serve as a sign? What it? The bread. 
Unleavened bread is going to serve as a sign to you on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord, the Torah, may be in your mouth. For with a powerful hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt. So what we have here is unleavened bread is a picture, it's a sign, it's a symbol. It's a symbol of the written word. It's like the written word is bread. We remember in Deuteronomy 8.3, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. These seem to be definitely connected. It's as if the bread of life is the written word. I mean, we're taking a look at unleavened bread and God is saying, this is a picture, the picture of my word, my written word, my Torah. But we remember Jesus had his last supper. I call it the Passover meal of the Messiah. And when we actually take a look at the New Testament accounts, the details that, that are provided in the New Testament definitely fit a Passover meal. I can truly understand from a scholarly position the debate, did Jesus have a Passover Seder or not? I can understand the debate. But it seems like there's key characteristics that are presented in the Gospels that show this probably was a Passover-like meal. But we recall that Jesus took the bread. It could have been unleavened bread. It's the day before or the night before, the actual Israelites would have their Passover meal. He did it a day before. He says the blessing, and he breaks the bread, and he gives it to his disciples. And he tells them, take and eat, for this is my body broken for you. Jesus now is connecting the bread to himself. The unleavened bread of the Passover, you guys, his disciples would easily make the connection. This was part of their annual experience at Passover every year. But Jesus is the word. He's not the written word. He's the living word. Jesus said he was the bread of life. And so now we have the living word is the bread of life. And also in the Torah, in the book of Exodus, we see the written word, God, says his written word is like the bread of life. We can go back to Malachi 3, 6, where the Lord says, I am the Lord and I do not change. If he doesn't change, Jesus did not take away the status of the written word. But there's something different going on here. We have the living word and we have the written word. Both pictures of bread both pictures of the bread of life, both signs. The written word, we remember the first redemption. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by the written word of God. Jesus is the living word. He's the bread of life. And then there's the written word, which is seemingly the bread of life. Now we recall what Paul said in Romans 10.4. Now, in the New American Standard, it says Jesus is the end of the law. Oh, Lord, I just, I hate the translation from the Greek into the English. It's not law. When you actually go into the Septuagint, the translation of the Hebrew 
scriptures from Hebrew into the Greek, the Greek word nomos is the word that's used for law and also for Torah. And Jesus is the end of the Torah. More than likely in context, this is what it means. But Jesus didn't do away with the Old Testament. He didn't do away with God's instruction. So a better way of saying it from the Greek as we go back to the Hebrew, to put both of them together, the Greek and the Hebrew, the Torah, God's written instruction, is completed in Jesus. It's almost like saying that the Torah was incomplete. It was like this beautiful puzzle that God put together. Not really a puzzle, this beautiful picture, but it had a missing piece. A key missing piece. When we read Paul in Acts 13, 38 through 39, let me paraphrase it for you. What the books of Moses couldn't do, Jesus did. The books of Moses is the Torah. What the Torah couldn't do, Jesus did. Paul is teaching something is missing in the beautiful picture of the written word of Torah. Something is critically missing. But what the Torah couldn't do, Jesus did. And the great Jewish rabbis... And I have mentioned this previously, not only in this series, but also in the Genesis series. The great Jewish rabbis like Rabbi Akiva in the early 2nd century AD, or the great Rabbi Maimonides in the late 11th and early 12th century AD, and the writer of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 4, that there's no sacrifice, no ritual, nothing in the Torah. The books of Moses. Nothing that takes away our sin. Nothing. Guys, there's something incomplete about Torah. It's missing something. The great rabbis, the author of Hebrew, the the book of Hebrews, and Paul. Torah, the books of Moses, is incomplete. It's not finished. More is needed to fill out the written word. Yes. Romans 10, verse 4, the Torah is complete in Jesus. It's finished in him. Yes. Now sins can be totally forgiven. Now our sins through Jesus can be totally erased. This is what Maimonides said. This is what Akiva said. This is what the writer of the book of Hebrews said. That the Torah by itself, with all of its stipulations and its laws and its rituals and prayers could not take away sin. It's it's called intentional sin. We won't get into that now. But in Jesus, we have again have a right standing with the Father, a pure standing with the Lord. In Jesus, Torah is complete. It's finished. And just as Jesus said on the cross in John chapter 19, verse 30, it is finished. And this when we relate it to what Paul said in Acts 13, 38 through 39, when we relate it to what Paul said in Romans 10, 4, when we hear Jesus' words that it's finished, Jesus did not get rid of Torah. He did not get rid of the Old Testament. He finished it. Now, before the crucifixion, maybe a day or two before, we read the following. 
And I'm in Matthew 22, verses 35 through 40. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Actually, the greatest commandment in the Torah. There's that Greek word nomos again. It can be used for law. It can be used for Torah, the books of Moses. Here it is so clear. There are a whole bunch of commandments in the Torah. And in context here, nomos has to represent Torah. So in verse 36, we would say, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the Torah? And Jesus said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and prophets. Now all the Pharisees were gathered together. Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, the son of David. And he said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? I just love that. But the first, the verse that I want to concentrate on here is verse 40. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So we look at that phrase, depend the whole law and the prophets. It's clear, law and prophets means the Torah and the prophets. In Judaism, in Jesus' day, <clears throat> as it is today, there are three sections to the Bible. The Torah, the prophets, and the writings. The, to the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. In other words, there is an acronym that you might hear of called the Tanakh, T for Torah, N for Nevi'im, the prophets, and the Chet for the Ketuvim, the writings. So, here we say that with regards to the whole Torah and the prophets, we talk about these two laws. The word depend there is the Greek word krianomi. Krian, oh, krianomi. Krianomi. Strong's number 2910. Depend. Yeah, I can see where they got that from. However, when we actually get to its use, especially in Jesus' day, it means to hang up, to suspend, or crucify. The Hebrew word that is translated from the Hebrew to the Greek in the Septuagint is talah. And that Strong's number is 8518, to hang up and suspend. And all of a sudden, in Jesus' own words, this begins to make sense. The written word and Jesus, the living word, are both brought to the cross. The written word and the living word are joined together as one. The written word is now complete only through the cross. The death of God's firstborn. The sacrifice of God's firstborn. Once again, the God takes a future event. Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus' passion and death. And engineers history so that it connects to an earlier event. He wants this major sacrifice, the redemption plan of the entire world. He, re, he has it as a reflection of the Exodus. One was a great redemption. This is the greatest redemption. 
just amazing again how he connects them in the passover and exodus we do that to remember what god did and the passover the messiah we do this to remember what jesus did he said it remember this is in luke 22 verse 19 we talk about it's the establishment of Holy Communion. Do this in remembrance of me. So is it Holy Communion? Uh, only referring to Holy Communion? It seems likely. But I think when I see all of these connections, I mean like the Christmas story to Exodus, what we're dealing with here, dealing with Exodus, I think it could be that we should be doing a Passover meal of the Messiah as well. As a reflection of what the Jews did in Egypt, the Israelites did. So knowing this, the Thursday before Good Friday, I suggest that every Christian should be having a Passover meal of the Messiah at their home and they should probably come to the church later on that afternoon or evening and it should be an awesome time to actually go through the ritual of what we call Holy Communion. When I see all of this, I just see so much missing and so much more there is to understanding all of this. This is why I get so passionate. This is why I get so excited about this. That you can see that expanded view and see the awesomeness God's redemption plan. One thing you can do is check out a five-minute Bible study video. A five-minute Bible study video that I've done. It's in the series called Five Small Stones. It's episode nine. And it's entitled Torah is Finished. And so in that video, in five minutes, I try to capsulize everything that we've been talking about. So simply go to the website, and when you get to the website, you'll see the YouTube icon on the right-hand side of the home page. Click on that icon on that picture, and you'll go to the YouTube channel for Light of Menorah. Now when you're there, you'll be looking at your screen, and you'll probably see some pictures of at least five of the videos. I mean, there's I don't know, hundreds in there. But above that, you should see the word playlists. Click on Playlists and find the folder for Five Small Stones. Once you click on that Playlist icon, it'll open up and you can go directly to Episode 9. And I'm going to say this to you guys. This is going to blow you away. It takes... It just takes us... In, so here we have Christians about coming in and they're going to be celebrating Easter. We talk about Good Friday, Monday, Thursday, and so on, uh, um, Palm Sunday. There's so much more. So much more. Now we're going to end here, session 38, part one. And we will continue with session 38 in part two. In these verses of Exodus 13, verses 1 through 21, I'll see you in part two. Shalom. Shalom.